Well, welcome back to Moments with Moni. I'm so glad you're here. I hope your Thanksgiving weekend was wonderful and filled with family and friends and memories. And most of all, thankfulness. A national day of thanksgiving. But you know, a believer in Christ can be thankful every day of the year. It doesn't have to be relegated to just one especially when we have so much to be thankful for. As for today, I am thankful that we get to come back together again and look over Revelation chapter 2. Hello and welcome to Moments with Moni. I'm so glad you're here, where we ponder life from a biblical perspective, where salt makes us thirsty and light exposes darkness. Come, let's ponder these things together. Welcome back for a bit of a review of Revelation chapter 1, in a nutshell. I hope you had a chance to read ahead for Revelation chapter 2 that we will get to in just a bit. But first, if you were to share chapter 1 with a friend, how would you tell them about it? Do you remember what or who the book of Revelation is revealing and how did this bit of history get to us? It might help us remember if I repeat the step-by-step process. Actually, just thinking about steps will help us burn an image into our mind's eye. The apocalypsos, well, in English, apocalypse, meaning revelation, which came to us in steps throughout history, began with God, and it went to Jesus, to the angel, to John, to the seven churches, to you and I today. John then wrote down the things which he saw, just as he was told to. Those who read, hear, and keep the things which are written in the book are blessed because the time is at hand. And this conveys the sense that nothing more has to happen before the next item on God's calendar occurs, that being... The Rapture. Yes, yes, I know. The word rapture is not in the Bible. But the word harpazo, or which means snatching away, is in the Greek. But no one really likes that word. So instead, another word in our language conveys the snatching away of the church. I mean, can you imagine people standing around wondering where so many people went? Yes, that will be unfortunate. But I can also see those that were left behind trying to remember that Greek, that Greek word, oh, what, what, what was that? And trying to tell their neighbor, I think they were harpooned. No, no, harpotsed. No, harpotsoed. And their neighbor asking, what are you talking about? Raptured, that's it. Raptured will be something that those that are left behind have heard something about already by this time in history. But more on that later. John then continues to greet the churches in Ephesus. This area is known as Asia Minor. Paul was dead now, and Jerusalem had fallen by the hands of Rome in AD 70, 
So John, as he pastored the churches in that area, told them of the message he now had from the angel of God, of the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the prince of kings, the one who loved them enough to die to forgive their sins and wash all those sins away with his perfect sacrifice. This is uh, where John quotes from Zechariah 12. You can go back and read that again. Um, and he mentions one that will be coming in the clouds and every eye will see him and all those who pierced him and all the kindreds of the earth will wail when they see him. Who? The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, as described by the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus, of course, which was, which is, and which is to come. And just in case you don't recognize who that is, John makes it clear again, the Almighty. And then John described a vision in chapter 1 of the Son of Man, of Jesus. Remember, John is using words in his vocabulary that attempt to describe things no one had ever seen before and was told to write about it. I know that when I am writing, whether it be a short story or a novel or a letter, I stumble over my words and struggle to find just the right ones to convey the message that needs to be etched into the reader's mind or heart. So let's give Pastor John a break as we read the things he shares in this book. As we continue with this review, Revelation, like other books of the Bible, have a historical, geographical time and place. However, these times and places span thousands of years of history. In the Old Testament, the prophets tried so hard to understand the times in which it looks like they were living, but the words that were given them by God did not allow for them to see the future clearly. Sometimes the timelines to history overlapped or stretched out beyond the days of, say, Abraham and jumped ahead in history, and yet the words that were shared seemed to cover both of those eras. I remember standing on the mountains in Austria years ago, like in The Sound of Music, where you could see the mountaintops from where you were standing, all the way out as far as the eye could see. And you could even hear those big horns they used to communicate with each other in a different city. The mountains were so green and lush with Cows that wore bells as collars that dotted the mountainside covered in edelweiss. And yet, if you were to travel from that gorgeous spot to as far as the eye could see, it would take you through the valleys in between the mountaintops. Just as the prophets of old could see the tip-top tidbits, it would take time and other actual places to pull the prophecies together. Time and place is a sense we seem to be losing. I believe it began before our age of COVID, but has been accentuated because we live our lives 
before screens and have limited access to other people and other places now. Even as I craft a story, I travel into the recesses of my memories of places and other times that bring to light emotions, aromas, sounds, flavors, and sights to my mind's eye that help me describe an event that happened in history that I would like to share with you. But I have the benefit of using the vocabulary that is popular during my own lifetime, and neither am I attempting to describe a futuristic world so unlike my own as John had the task of accomplishing. Even though the descriptions we will read and hear throughout this book may be real difficult to put into time and space, it is, it was, and it will be just that, real. The seven golden candlesticks, a voice like rushing waters, and the son of man, a messianic title from Daniel, standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks and more. Here we have Jesus clothed in white with a golden sash, the robe and belt of a judge. Ooh, any of you out there who did the previous covenant study? Do you see the picture here? The mystery mentioned in verse 20 is explained as Jesus standing in the midst of the seven churches. So here we have a judge who bears the garment of a covenant-keeping judge come to speak to the churches in the next few chapters. Stay tuned as we begin Revelation chapter 2. The message that John received from the angel was for the seven churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus was the first and main church in this group of local churches and was known as the Mother Church. The letter that Pastor John wrote was what was known as a circular letter, one that would be read at Ephesus and then make the rounds to all the sister churches in the area. Revelation chapter 2 begins with what the Alpha and Omega has to say to these churches. And chapter 2 will cover four of the churches. After reviewing this chapter and the next, I guess you could say that this letter is kind of like a report card for each of the churches that comes with commendations, counsels or warnings, and promises to the overcomers. Commentators have speculated as to the letter's interpretation. Possibly only historical with no prophetic significance. Historical slash prophetic, where each church may represent a specific time in history, representative of the characteristics of each of the churches throughout history or an individual believer. Next, possibly, representation of the outline we saw in chapter 1 with the seven churches being the things which are, which would have been present time for John when he received this message. I believe that last one is where we are at and what I will be looking at as I go through this study. 
The four churches mentioned in chapter 2 are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and Thyatira. Ephesus was known as the mother church to all the others. It was also known for the temple of the goddess Diana. It was the largest, most important city in Asia at the time. The temple columns were as large as a city block. The pastors of this church were Paul and Timothy and John. Now that's some big guns as far as teachers or pastors are concerned. And you would think that with that kind of powerful teaching that the people would be solid in their faith. Well, let's see what the judge in his robe had to say to them. The judge gives the church of Ephesus a picture of himself as the one who is holding the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks as if he is walking among the churches. And he says to them, to Ephesus, I know your works. I know the labor that you do, the perseverance that you have, and that you cannot endure evil, that you have tested and found them to be liars, and you have persevered through persecution, and you hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a sect that used their Christian liberty as an excuse to self-indulge in immorality. The counsel that was given to Ephesus was, you have left your first love. Jesus says, I know that you do all these wonderful things, but I have something against you. You have left me. You have left your first love. How often do we get busy serving the Lord, doing things for him and for others, and we don't take the time to be at his feet and have a relationship with him. So after the commendations, the warning is to Ephesus to come back to your first love. Remember the former devotion that you have to Christ. Repent. Do the first works again. Remember, repent, repeat, turn around, come back to me, Jesus says. And if you don't, here's the warning he gives them, or I will remove your candlestick. I will take it out. Well, if you look into history, this largest church, the mother church in Asia Minor, the largest one in the area, the only thing that's left of it is one of the columns of the temple of the goddess of Diana. But there was one last thing that Jesus, the judge, told the church in Ephesus, and that was a promise to those that overcome. He said, I will give to eat of the tree of life to you, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, those in the church at Ephesus would have understood when John spoke about those who overcome, what an overcomer is, because back in the first century, John wrote a letter in 1 John to the church about overcomers. In uh, chapter, in 1 John chapter 2, 
starting in verse 13, it says, I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning, and I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you know the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof passes away as well. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Return to your first love. And John continued in 1 John chapter 2, warning his flock, the little children in his church, the flock that he pastored over about the dangers of the Antichrists right after this. So don't fall for what's out there that looks good in the world. Come back to your first love. Jesus loves you. We love because he first loved us. And now on to the second church in Revelation chapter 2. It was written to Smyrna, the message to the church at Smyrna. And the picture that Jesus gives to this specific church of himself is, uh, he says, As unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. A bit of history about Smyrna it was a prosperous and beautiful city in the Roman province of Asia, and it was about 50 miles north of Ephesus on the Aegean shore. For political reasons and because of political favors, Rome granted Smyrna's request to build a temple to the Roman emperor of Tiberius. Like Pergamus, Smyrna became a temple warden of the imperial cult. This pagan practice of emperor worship resulted in lots of persecution for the church. In 155-156 AD, Polycarp, the disciple of the Apostle John and bishop at Smyrna, became its twelfth martyr. Smyrna is only mentioned in Revelation in chapter 1 and 2, and its ruins now today lie under the present Turkish city of Izmir. The first and the last, who was dead but is now alive, told them, I know your works, and I know the tribulation, the suffering, and the poverty that you go through, but you are rich. The blasphemy I know of, of those that, are, that say they are Jews, but are of the synagogue of Satan among you. And to this church there is no warning or rebuke, but rather Jesus says, Fear not. I know you're suffering. The devil will cast some of you in prison to be tested. Ten days, 
be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of life and to the overcomers in this church of smyrna jesus says you shall not be hurt of the second death yes god does allow testing but he does not tempt us to sin his gifts are always better than satan's bargains james chapter 1 verse 12 says blessed is the man that endures temptation for when he has tried he shall receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to them that love him the third church is known as pergamus in revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 12 pergamus was known as satan's seat it was married to a political system it was a university town with a huge library and known for the temple of the imperial cult built in 29 bc pergamus today is a turkish town of bergama with a current population of about a hundred thousand people it is about 50 miles north of the city of izmir which used to be smyrna it shares the site of the ancient pergamum of which there are extensive ruins and the modern town lies over the remains of the roman city while the remains of the ancient greek city with its acropolis lies across from the bergama river the picture given to this church of who jesus was was one who has a sharp sword with two edges and two pergamus jesus speaks and tells them i know your works where you dwell and where satan's throne is satan dwells among you and you hold on to my name you're loyal to god even in the dark surroundings yes the nicolaitans they rule over the people and god doesn't like it and jesus tells pergamus that i do have a few things against you you hold to the doctrine of balaam which is paganism resulting in a stumbling block to israel with idolatry and immorality and you hold fast to the deeds of the nicolaitans which i do not like repent therefore he says and discipline yourself it's almost like he's saying don't make me come down there change your ways repent and thankfully there is a word to the overcomer of this church which says that he will give to eat of the hidden manna he will give him a white stone a new name written on it on that stone and no one knows it except the one who receives it and to the last church that we'll cover in revelation chapter 2 it is thyatira which means continual sacrifice it was the hometown of lydia paul's first convert but it suffered from female false teachers and to this church jesus came looking as one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and feet as fine brass there was a self-proclaimed prophetess at thyatira whom who christ called jezebel 
She was leading the church into false doctrine, idolatry, and immorality, just as the Old Testament Jezebel had done to Israel. This Jezebel refused to repent and therefore would be judged along with her followers and her children or disciples. To those in Thyatira, Jesus says, I know your works and your charity, your love, your service, your faith, your patience, and your works, again he mentions. But he does have a few things against them. They allow self-proclaimed prophetesses to teach false doctrine. There's no repentance, and there will be judgment. There was sickness and tribulation on her and her followers. If you read First Kings chapter 16, if you stay away from this doctrine, no other burden will I put upon you. Hold fast till I come, he says. And then those sweet words to the overcomer. He says, those that keep my words unto the end, to him will I give the power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as pottery broken into pieces. Even as I received of my father, I will give him the morning star. No matter how we look at this book being interpreted, we can all find ourselves in there somewhere and find a lesson to learn from. Most definitely one to remember, repent, and repeat, and to return to our first love. Each of these particular churches have something that was said to turn them back to Christ. And did you notice that he revealed himself to each of these churches in a different way? So what became of these churches? Well, I already touched on the church of Ephesus, Jesus promised to remove their candlestick from out of the midst of them if they didn't repent and do the first things first again, to turn back to their first love. Ephesus now stands as a pile of rubble except for some columns. The ruins of Smyrna is now the marketplace near the thriving seaport of Izmir. And Jesus reminded them that they are spiritually rich, even though they are materially poor. Their early church father, Polycarp, was the bishop of Smyrna and a disciple of the Apostle John. At the age of 86, he was burned at the stake for refusing to renounce his faith in Christ. Some of Polycarp's last words were, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The ruins of Pergamum are atop a hill overlooking the modern-day city of Bergama. And there stand the ruins of the Temple of Zeus. Some think that this temple is why Jesus called Pergamum the place where Satan has his throne. Jesus warned those in Thyatira who were tolerating the deceptive teachings of Jezebel, that female false teacher, an unrepentant influencer, few had remained true to the faith, and Jesus encouraged them to hold on. He promised authority over nations to those who persevere until the end. The scant ruins of Thyatira are unearthed in the modern city of Akishar, with more than a 100,000 people. 
Contemporary apartment buildings line the streets, teeming with buses and cars. But there is no church in Akashar and no known believers. Thanks so much for walking through Revelation chapter 2 with me. If you get a chance, read your Bible and read through Revelation chapter 3 before we meet next time. If you like what you're hearing, please share it with a friend. Or go to momentswithmoni.com and click on the Buy Me a Coffee button and donate a coffee or two to help keep me going. As always, you can email me at momentswithmoni, the number one, at gmail.com and send me your prayer requests or comments. Thanks for listening.